Hey, everyone, before we get uh, started on uh, this episode, um, I just want to kind of do a couple of things. One, um, Steve and I uh, both had a couple of things going on in our lives. Uh, the day we recorded, we decided to record because um, it's hard to get everybody assembled um, and it's not always easy for scheduling when we do this kind of part time um, around busy lives. So anyway, we decided to go ahead. Now, Steve had lost and and to be fair, I think the hunting community lost a, a gentleman named Sean Richardson, who is the, the past president of the Osceola uh, Fishing Game Club, a big advocate for conservation uh, who had a six year battle with cancer and Steve was a, was a good friend of his. Um, and myself personally, although um, my, my bad story as of today as I'm recording this ends up a little bit better, that our family, uh, our family dog had uh, ran away uh, and he's an elderly dog and uh, we didn't think he was coming back. So, um, so we were both a little distracted and we wanted to be totally present in the moment um, to facilitate the, the subject matter. And uh, if if we kind of get lost a little bit or bumble stumble as you listen to the episode, we apologize. We were a little distracted, but felt it was important to try to uh, get through the get through and cover this subject. The other thing I want to say is, listen, I'm we're not having a podcast without the folks at Meat Eater, and uh, we're we're big fans of of Steve Ranella and Matt Ranella, and it's you know I've I've written things and posted things that people react to. Um, I'm not, we're not doing this episode as a pile on, uh, anti-meat eater thing. This was, uh, it, it forced a really interesting conversation about, do we want our hunting ranks to grow? How would they grow? Will they grow? Um, you know, and what's the consequences of that? Um, at one point we're going to, you know, Matt makes a point that, um, you know, part of it will be about, uh, uh, the, the pile on effect of more hunters to, you know, system ecology by adding to levels of predation. Uh, somewhere in this episode. I, I'm not trying to be dismissive of his opinion. I think that that's a real consequence. Um, but I don't think that that was the, I don't think that's a primary reason uh, behind his argument, um, at least in his op-ed piece. Now, you know, when you write something, you can always put on um, a different set of glasses to like, to, to, t- to take a look back at what you wrote. And sometimes you might, uh, you might go, you know what, you know, I didn't think that way through. Uh, th- or think that thing all the way through. Uh, Steve Rinella's, uh, you know, post uh, follow-up piece uh, clarified his own position. And I, there are many times, including as we're doing this podcast, you know, where we get on the other side of something and I will look backwards and go, I don't know that I said that right, you know, and I don't know that, that that's going to come off the way that I want it. Um, you know, in the, in the case of writing stuff, uh, sometimes you're going to, you're going to lay down what you think and, uh, time goes by and, you know, you, you realize, you know, you had, you had a different agenda or there was something else that was bubbling below the surface, which is why it led you to, to say the things that you said. Anyway, not an apologia for, for Matt, uh, or Steve, but we also want to recognize that, uh, we invite those kinds of conversations, whether they get prickly, um, and whether they, you know, they push up against the, the dark corners of the things that we don't want to talk about uh kudos to matt ranella for saying that stuff out loud and, and facilitating a conversation uh regardless of the outcome anyway enjoy this episode cheers
You're listening to the Cutbanks Conversation, a hunting, fishing, and conservation-based podcast here in beautiful British Columbia, proudly sponsored by Spruce City Wildlife Association. All right. So uh, before we get started, I'm just going to kind of set the stage for today's episode. Uh, we've got a few guests uh, that are going to join us. Uh, Alan Duffy, uh, Jennifer Lai, uh, and Maddie Starnes. Um, we're going to sit down and talk um, a little bit about hunter recruitment and the role it plays in growing our hunting tradition. Um, and are we in fact growing our hunting tradition. And all of this is born out of an op-ed piece that was uh, published on the Meteor website a few weeks ago by Matt Ranella, Steve Ranella's brother. Now it's had a follow-up piece um, from Steve Ranella, which was, which was great to sort of clarify some of his opinion um, on the matter and Meteor as a brand, their opinion. Um, but a, a couple of things I want to just, I just want to kind of color in here is I think Matt Ranella is a great guy. He's one of my he's been one of my favorite guests on the podcasts and in, in program. He's an ecologist. I think he's a well-intended person. I think this is just a reflection of that. Uh, there's the inside voice, um, and maybe this is letting that inside voice get outside. But the other thing that it does is he's he's saying maybe at at a volume uh, in this penmanship. Um, some things that maybe we're all thinking. And I thought at the very least it's worth having. Ha- examining the the subject of, of hunting and hunting recruitment and where we're headed as a hunting community, um, I thought it was worth uh, at least pushing into some of these these ideas and some of the things that he wrote down. So we're going to play out uh, a, a few of the, the the different things that he you know he put out in in, in his article. Uh, we're going to try to speak to them. We're going to kind of work our way around them. Um, you know, some of the opinions will be broadly shared by everybody on the podcast. Some of us will differ. Uh, and we're going to just take a look at that. So we're going to take a quick pause uh, and say a few kind words about our good friend Omer at Precision Optics. And we'll be right back on the Cut Banks Conversation. Hey, you want a hot tip on how to get yourself dialed in this hunting season so you're ready when that big old bull or that beautiful broom ram steps into view? Can you picture it? I sure can. Maybe you just want to be like me and hit the range and ring some steel at a few hundred yards. I don't care what your reasons are, but here's my hot tip. You ready? You listening? You got to get yourself set up with one of Precision Optics Complete Range and Hunt Ready Packages. Omer's done all kinds of work on these things. All the rifle and scope packages that he's got have been professionally zeroed, ballistically calibrated, optimized, and range tested for precise accuracy. I don't even know what the heck that means, but it sure sounds impressive. And who has done all that work? Omer, why? Because he knows what he's doing. This guy shoots every single week this guy's out there shooting. So the guns that he's selling you, the guns, the optics, he is field testing them, putting them in these dial packages, the chronograph, range tested out to 540 yards. These rifle packages are designed to fit your shooting and hunting applications and are built around your personal budget and your input and your needs. This guy absolutely knows what he's doing. And, and I'll tell you, he's got a few on the shelf right now. Maybe it's the Seiko Hunter and six and a half Creedmoor. You know Creedmoor, the one you can shoot the moon with, with a Burr Signature 5x25x50. Or maybe it's a Fierce TI Edge and seven Rem Mag with a Zeiss Conquest uh, 4x16x44. I don't know. Like, there's scopes all over the place. There's rifles all over the place. No budget, too big. No budget, too small. The guy can find a solution for anybody. If you want to shoot and you want to hunt or you just want to hit to the range, this is the guy that you need to see at Precision Optics is the place you need to go. There are plenty of ready-built, dialed-up packages available right now, or give Omer a call. You 
build out your own. Get dialed in at Precision Optics online on the interweb at precisionoptics.net or see them in person inside Aroma Foods in beautiful, sunny, not quite downtown, Quinnell, British Columbia. Tell them Don sent you. Cheers. All right, and we are back uh, after all of that uh, misery and mayhem and sound issues. And, <laughs> and, and the people on the other side aren't even going to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're like, what the hell are they talking about? They're back. What, what misery? Yeah, what misery? Well, we went through some. So sorry about that. So we, we have, uh, it's like 11 <laughs> we have a new now. we have a new guest in, in with us from BHA, and uh, she had to be welcomed in all that way. Sorry, Jenny. That wasn't a way to welcome you into this whole thing. So... And here we are. So, uh, long time no hear from our friend Mandy. Mandy, what is going on in your world? Working tons. I was at work sixty hours this week. So I'm I assuming is that is a global pandemic have anything to do with that? Yeah, and it's nurse burnout too. There's people are just sick of it. Yeah, I can only imagine. Staffing issue right That's now. In the hearing, yeah. So I'm going to imagine that hunting is not on the world view quite yet. Not quite. Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> but they'll be you'll be clamoring for some. All right. Alan, how are you? I'm going for All good. Yeah, things are well. Very good. So we've got uh Alan Duffy, uh, who is the chair the chairman or president of uh, BC Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. What do you prefer? What's the role? Uh well our, our the title is chair, but it doesn't it doesn't really matter to me. But yeah, chair of the BC chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Not Grand Imperial Grand Poobah or I, anything like that. I was gonna say if, yeah. if, yeah. We, if we get to pick titles, I want one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Alan's got the coolest one. So and Jenny Jenny, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for welcoming me on here. Yeah, th- well thanks for thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Where's home for you? Um, I'm sitting right here in Vancouver, British Columbia. And how are things in Vancouver? I'm a, uh, let me guess, they're they're beautiful and it's sunny outside and <laughs> and all that stuff. I don't want to rub salt on Mandy's wound, but I'm totally obsessed with spring bears right now, and they're out and they're roaming <laughs> because it's hot in Vancouver. Uh, and so, yeah, that's awesome. That's where things are at. So, uh, why don't you, because uh, everybody else has uh, been on the program before, so Jenny, tell us a little bit about yourself, if you introduce yourself to everybody in the Cutbanks conversation world. Okay, awesome. Well, uh, I just want to clarify that I am just a volunteer for the BC chapter of the BHA. I help with some of the events and things of that sorts. Uh, My daytime job is I'm actually a software salesperson. I sell software for creative companies. Uh, to help manage their business. But I do have a sidekick where I do develop wild game recipes and things of that sorts. Um, and that's called Chasing Food Club. And that's how I became passionate about wildlife conservation. And that's why I dedicate uh, my time to the BC chapter of the BHA. Well, that's pretty cool. How did, so, so real quick, how did that evolve? Let's get your hunting story a little bit. How, how does all this happen? Because it's going to be pretty relevant when we get into this discussion. So... Sure. I definitely think I'm here for that diversity <laughs> because, <laughs> well, I was, I grew up in the city. I still don't own a car. I was self-taught. I had no mentors in hunting. Uh, and quite frankly, my first exposure to hunting was probably an episode of Meat Eater on Netflix about three years ago. So, so had just out of curiosity prior to that, in, in your in your world of software, um, uh, it, 
how, how does how do you watch that and go you know um that might be fun like I, a lot of people don't watch a show and go there's I, I, we all get there differently and uh, but it's interesting that you started there so what took you from that seems interesting to I think I'm going to go get a gun or a bow and go out and do this thing well my background is I'm mostly Vietnamese and we like to do things very extreme it's like far right or far left and nothing in between. <laughs> and I, right at the time when I stumbled across an episode of Meat Eater, I was just, I was sick of chasing money. I was tired. So I quit my job and I decided, you know, what actually brings me true joy? And my only one, my memory was I was a little girl digging holes in the dirt and collecting worms and bees for my class toad. And that bought me the most delight. And I also have this desire just to serve people with food. And thinking on those two things, I took up three restaurant jobs that barely covered my rent. But in that journey of, you know, being tired of chasing money and decided to do things that I love instead, I stumbled across some people that hunt and gathered in the restaurant industry that pointed me to an episode of Meat Eater. And here I am. What was the episode? Just so we all know. I think I probably watch episode one. So Just it's episode. been a few years now, and I don't remember what that was. <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember what they were hunting? Was it a hunting? Was it a hunting episode or a fishing episode? It was definitely a hunting episode because right. I remember seeing what the hell is that? Is that a? Is that like a? It was an elk, and I thought to myself, is that a mythical Harry Potter creature? Because I actually <laughs> didn't know elk existed prior. I, I can say from experience, they are a mythical creature. Yeah, they yeah. are hard as hell. Yeah, to that hunt. doesn't change apparently. So. All right. Well, we're going to, so what, what I'd like to do is um, we're going to talk a little bit about um, an article and I'm going to, this is my segue and they love those segues on the Meat Eater podcast. Um, so my segue is this. A few um, weeks back, Matt Ranella, Steve Ranella's brother, as we've talked about, writes an article called The Case Against Hunter Recruitment. Now, I remember when it came out, I actually didn't think much of it and I breezed by the article. I think I read maybe... I, I read just a tiny bit of Steve's preamble, and I actually didn't get into the meat and potatoes of the article. And then um, about a week went by, and then I saw a, an article by Outdoor Life, and just by accident in different search terms, I see this, the rebuttal to Matt Ranella's article was, I think, the Google return that I got. And I'm like, rebuttal? Why, does, why did that article, re what did I miss? So when I went and read it, I instantly went, oh, boy. <laughs> and that led to me doing reading not only uh, Outdoor Life's uh, four-piece response, um, but the Hunters of Color, I read their response as well. Yep. Um, and then I immediately said, okay, this has got to be an episode, so I got a hold of Alan and said, we got to talk about this. And Alan, because you're with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and you, I would, as an organization... I think that would be one of the tenets that Lant uh, Lantani would be a big advocate of, and it would be one of their big through lines. Was that fair? Yeah, that's very fair. BHA is certainly uh, an advocate for, for the R3 movement in, in the U.S., for sure. So I'm going to uh, – I actually liked when I read the Outdoor Life response, and I'm going to start with this particular quote, uh, and this will set the stage uh, for the rest of this discussion. So – the, the idea, the case, against our, the, the case against our three, and here's the quote. I'm an outdoorsman who craves solitude, yet my hunting spots get more crowded every year. 
That, in a nutshell, is why I'm leery of R3. Um, Alan, when you did you did you read this article before I sent it to you? Uh, no, to be honest, I hadn't. But I, I I read it, and then I read all of the other pieces, uh, you know, like that that went along with it. But I hadn't read the I hadn't read the Outdoor Life uh, until you sent it to me. So when you read Matt's uh, article, what was your takeaway? What was your reaction when you started to read into that? Well, I think like that, I mean, there's some quotes in there that are that are very valid and relatable, certainly. Um, I think we can all relate to the frustration of seeing more people out there or, uh, you know, an interruption in, in our striving for solitude. Um, definitely, I think that resonates with most most of us. But I thought, you know, I thought it missed uh, it missed a few things. And, and to me, when, when I think of R3 and when BHA thinks of R3, we think of it as the educational piece. And, and I think um, and I, I think I hope we get into that as we talk more tonight. But but I think that was missing as well as and it was pointed out in the Hunters of Color article as, as well as the diversity piece, which are two things that I think uh, were glaringly missing from from Matt's synopsis. But certainly like the feelings that, you know, I can relate to some of the stuff that he talked about for sure. Mandy, what were your thoughts? I forwarded all this stuff along and I, I, it's not like I was saying, hey, everybody be equally as outraged as me. I was actually trying to solicit hopefully some different perspective. But uh, what did you think when I sent you the articles? Uh, when I read his writing, it did down it did come off as very like anti new hunter yeah but i think when stephen came out with his um kind of clarification on his brother's article he said how his brother doesn't trust social media and i heard also an interview with matt as well and he thinks that some people are getting into hunting for the wrong reasons like the social media aspect the likes the instagram fame like trying to become sponsored by companies. And also he doesn't really trust some of the hunting industry companies that have come along as well. Um, so kind of devil's advocate here, I guess. Because <laughs> well, you're also a sponsored <laughs> hunter. <laughs> but um, so there's a couple of things to that. Like when I read it, and my wife and I talked about it, my wife doesn't hunt, but when mm-hmm. I read some of the, the bits and pieces, my wife encapsulated it the best. She, she said, this is kind of like the get off my lawn speech, right? Mm-hmm. You know, she, she's like, Matt, she said, and as much as there's a point, she said, I really feel like he just like a grumpy old guy that's like, Jesus, you're in my, you're in my mule deer spot. You're, this is where my elk are. Like, you know, get in your, leave my lawn alone, right? And I, I understand, I understand the feeling of, you know, going out, you know, you, you, you get up, it's four o'clock in the morning, you start to drive to your favorite, you know, hunting spot, maybe you're road hunting, it's springtime, uh, you're road hunting for bears, and now there's two or three pickup taillights in front of you, and then you start the whole uh, M and the F and the F and the, what, they're going to ruin my hunt, and, or you backpack in someplace, which has happened, and then you get into, uh, you get into a spot, and then you look across, and it's, you know, in Saskatchewan, I've, you know, I spent an hour getting to a location to watch three guys standing on different hillsides all look into the same valley. And you're like, okay, well, you know, this is a waste. But I, I think that's part of it. It just comes with the territory. Is that not fair ball? I mean, I, that's, that's part of it. I mean, it, is it because it begs the question, how many is enough and how many is too many? 
at what point do we say, like, is there a threshold? Do we have to have a hunting meter? <laughs> is that what it is? It's like, you know, we're struggling with, you know, is it 13 million in the U.S.? It's 1.3 million in Canada. It's been as high as 2 million in Canada at one point, um, you know, in, in the last 25 years. Um, but is there like, is, in British Columbia, we've got 115,000. So if all of a sudden there were 230,000 people, how would we feel about our opportunity? Is, that, is it something we want or something we don't want? Thoughts on that? Well, I can tell you right now, in 1981, we had 174,000 resident hunters in BC. And we had wildlife everywhere. Yeah. Right? So how come there was no issue with people back then? Right? Is it, it, it's a perceived I, me, my. Right? We're, we're, uh, if, if you don't like people in what you deem your spot, find another one. Find something that gets you off the, the, the path just a little bit more. Find some people that let you hunt private land, right? I, I, you and I have done it more than once. We, we've been driving down at four in the morning, and all of a sudden we're like, all right, we're the first ones in here. Oh, there's a set of headlights. Well, this sucks. We're going to go somewhere else. We never yeah. feel the, the need to pen an article and say, as, as Marina said, <laughs> get off my lawn. It's not your lawn. It's everybody's lawn. Uh, yeah, like, I mean, I think – is the competition that we face, is it, is it because there's more hunters or is it because, uh, you know, the, the, the habitat or the access has changed in those 30 years since 1981? And it certainly has, right? And, and that's... 40 years, we're getting older. Yeah. Thanks for spraying some sunshine in our lives. So thanks, Steve. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm allowed. <laughs> but, that, you know, that's... Um, you know, when you talk about that kind of stuff, yeah, I mean, can we, you know, can we feed the whole country if everyone wants to be a hunter? No, we can't do that. That The resource can't sustain that type of pressure. But are we really going to get there by, you know, recruiting a few more folks? I, I don't think so. No, I think we not. have to definitely. focus on the big picture. Yeah, Je- Jenny, when, when you, so you, I want to grab your perspective on this because you, you've been hunting for how long now? Uh, three, I want to say three, four years. Okay. So three, three or four years ago, did, did hunting, did, did it look like we were hanging up a shingle that said, everybody welcome? Well, I live in Vancouver and I, I actually thought it was super hard to find anything on hunting. Uh, visually around me was non-existent. Online, I felt like to even find the terms, you had to know very specific words to Google for. Okay. Um, yeah. Or uh, yeah. So yeah, I would have never Vancouver. figured it yeah. out on my own. Yeah. So. so so did you did you look for a and I'm going somewhere with this? Did you look for for an organization that you, did you say okay I need to like what were you searching like learning how to hunt in British Columbia? You know, is that like what were the search terms that you were looking on as you're trying to seek out that knowledge? So you know what's funny is. I didn't even know there was such thing as an organization mm-hmm. that taught hunting. That's how far removed yep. I was. Yep. I didn't discover the BHA till two years, or maybe it was the end of my first year or something. Um, and that was just through word, uh, accidental word of mouth of me overhearing a conversation. And I didn't know organizations like the BCWF existed. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this, I, uh, I... it's not obvious. I can speak I can speak to that coming from Vancouver myself. I my first exposure to hunting as you know, I was about 8 years old. 
but it was with my grandparent or my, my grandfather and my, my uncles. And I walked away from it for 20 some odd years. But growing in, growing up in Vancouver, it was, okay, well, I want to get into hunting. And exact same as Jenny. It is not spoken of down there. I got into it because I went into uh, a gun store and I started asking questions. Well, this is probably where I'm going to get some answers. And I met a friend behind there. We ended up being a friend and said, oh, you need this, you need this, you need this. Well, holy shit, there's more to it than I figured because it's it, it, you see it everywhere. Uh from those that are not involved. They figure you can just get a rifle and go out into the bush and shoot. But it's it's not spoken of down in Vancouver so, much at all. But, I mean, Mandy, you grew up in a hunting family, right? Yeah. Now, so when you grew up, though, I mean, and Alan, are you Alan, are you from small town, big town? Uh, so my story is a little bit mixed up. Um, I immigrated to Canada when I was eight years old. I came from, from Ireland. Okay. So there's no, there's no hunting. There's no camping there's no much for outdoor life in in ireland but yeah when we moved to canada we moved to a small town so my dad he dabbled a little bit in hunting when i was little and but i didn't start till um i was in my mid-30s probably when i when i started and i started i mean i had a group i I live in cranbrook southeast corner of bc here i mean there's a lot of folks here that hunt so um it was through social circles that got me started but I mean, Mandy, for you, it's always in your periphery in a small town. Is that fair to say? It is. Uh, a lot of the kids I went to high school with, they'd be like, oh, I'm going deer hunting with my dad after school kind of thing, right? But um, even with me, I grew up hunting. But when I was away in post-secondary school, like my time off wasn't, it didn't belong to me. I had to dedicate pretty much all my time <laughs> off to studying so that I could yeah, a good yeah. and pass and be a nurse today. But so what I find interesting, like I'm from, you know, I'm from Regina. So, but in Regina, in in the, inside the city, are there hunters? Absolutely. There's a fairly robust hunting community, but I could get through an entire day in, in a dealership that I work at in a high volume store and never trip across anybody that's even going to remotely reference hunting. You can have that day in Regina. It's pretty easy. Um, and I would imagine for Jenny, it's uh, you can go for weeks in parts of a big met, you know, yeah. metropolis like Vancouver. Uh, I would argue parts of Edmonton, certainly Toronto, where those conversations, you know, you you need to like she did seek them out. But here, you know, I, when I moved to Prince George, it's eighty thousand people. But I can tell you the very first thing that I said to Steve was, is there anybody in this town that, that doesn't, doesn't hunt? hunt? I, what, what was crazy to me was I would have start. I, I come here as a hunter looking to expand his hunting world. And it took me one day to sort of the very first day I was here, I did three appraisals of vehicles. Every single appraisal had a gun in it. There was a gun case in every single one and a browning sticker on everything, on everything I appraised that day. And I was like, well, great. I, I can find my way into that community. But, when, but when, when it's not in your peripheral vision, you know, when it's not part of, of the, the common conversation, you have to go seek that stuff out. And what I've always wondered is, you know, as we're always trying to read the label from inside the bottle as hunters. Because when I read that, I never, the thing that I missed, much like Ranella, I, I missed the part about uh, diversity. 
I missed the part about putting that there's a signpost in a statement that, like that that says, hey, if, you're, if, if your ethnicity isn't white, because 96% of the hunting world is white, if, you, you know, if you're a woman, I didn't think about it that way, that, that just saying something like that, like, hey, listen, too many hunters, not really interested, like, you know, go find your own recreation. I never saw it that way. You know, and I, I, it, I, it wasn't until I kind of read through that a little bit and started to read the rebuttals because it wasn't, that wasn't on my horizon as I read that. But as I've kind of started to, to think through this on the other side of the discussion and, and doing some research, it, it's conspicuous to me that as a hunting community, I don't know that we even think about it that way. You know, it's not that we're deliberately, you know, we're, we're, we're colorblind uh, or, and, and we, we don't see it, right? Um, we're not... We're not speaking in a universal language of inclusion. We're, we're all inclusive in our ideas about conservation and wanting better habitat, all of those things. There's a collective around that. But I don't know how big the gate is that we've created to bring new people into it. Because, Jenny, how, how long did it take for you to connect to somebody that was willing to take you out and do the things that you wanted to do? A very long time. <laughs> I, it's been three, four years, and I have still not cut my own bear or deer tag. And I've announced this on three separate podcasts, hoping somebody will take me out. Just putting it out there. Just putting it out <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not that desperate. But it, it just gives you an idea. It's hard to earn someone's trust and yeah. connect with somebody to take uh, and have them take you out. Yeah, I think sure. it is. Uh, just cut in there. I think it is harder for a woman as well because most hunters are guys. Yep. And like you're, you're as a woman. I mean, red flags go up. Like some guys, like yeah, I'll take you out in a bush with my gun. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, that doesn't sound like a good idea. Well, like, even, like my friend Ella, who I met on social media. I saw her post and she's like, oh, I really want to get a spring bear. And that's how I connected with her. And I did get her a spring bear. <laughs> and we go hunting together now. And she had a difficult time because she's away from her family where she's living down in lower mainland as well. And her family's in Alberta. So she had no one really to go out with. So I offered and now we're buddies <laughs> and we're hunting together. But, but, but I think that that's part of, um, you know, I, when I got into hunting, it was probably a little bit easier. But I would tell you that as a as a adult onset hunter, if we're still using that term, um, Alan, you're probably in the same boat as as you know Steve and I. You kind of came to it later in life, correct? Yep, exactly. And so when when you when you decided to, but being in a smaller community, it was sort of it was around you a little bit in terms of access into this as a recreation. Did you find it difficult to to connect the dots, find somebody to take you out, show you the ropes? um put you in the field um or is it all uh, what were you doing what jenny's been doing like watch meat eater read google and try to figure it out on your own no and that's uh, you know that's why um yeah no it's a completely different experience you know i was i was out hunting with with buddies before i even you know kind of recognized that it was something i wanted to do i, I think what took me longer was connecting with um hunters that had the that 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 evolved into the same values that i have when i when i mm. want to be out there hunting so yeah. so that probably took a little bit longer you know that process took years but to 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 be able to go out on the weekend with somebody like that that was already happening before i even clued in that hey i want to be part of this so i but think I, it's a much different experience in a small town for a guy 
surrounded with other guys doing that thing. So, so let's just let let's go a little bit up in elevation a little bit though. Let's just take a look at you know hunting. Um, I guess in the broadest in, in a in a very broad sense from a from a ten thousand foot view looking looking down on it. Um, you know, we have this tradition that's been around for for centuries, right? Um, and it's you know it's a hunter gatherer society, and and there's a, there's there's a giant industry that is around this. I mean, meat eaters is a, perf- is a perfect example of it. It's it's a giant industry. You know, there's guns and recreational shooting and all the gear and all the things that go with that. And there's television and media and stuff that there's an entire um, world that is baked around hunting, and then in that. Over, over the last 30 years, 30 or 40 years, we've seen a decline. In some cases, people are sounding alarm bells mm-hmm. and saying it's a precipitous decline. But is it, you know, Mandy, I think one of the points that you were making was, th- but the amount of hunters that we're seeing as a percentage of the population hasn't changed dramatically, right? So what I'm curious about is, is the take rate always going to be in that, you know, four percent three percent of the population is that all is is that just the median is that the number it's always going to be four you know three or four percent of the population that's interested i kind of i kind of think that that's probably correct and and um you know that that might move around a little bit maybe it goes to five six percent for a few years maybe it drops back down but you know we're not i don't think we're going to turn this into a ten percent uh it's just not going to happen. So, so at the same time, you know, we've got to look at, at that, at that diversity piece and also look at, you know, the thing, um, when you're talking about those percentages, I think we're especially noticeable here in BC to me is the rural urban divide and, and Jenny's experience kind of speaks to that. So if, if we as hunters want to influence change and make sure that our heritage is, going to continue um we need to get some of those urban folks somewhat exposed to this activity whether it be that they know someone that does it i mean we don't have to necessarily bring them in the fold but um yeah i don't think that percentage is going to swing big one way or the other jenny did you did you hear about the grizzly bear um hunting ban did that did that cross your path before you became a hunter like was it but 2017 when they closed it 17 I did hear about it a little later on, and I haven't stopped uh, hearing about it since. <laughs> um, and just to kind of add on to Al's piece, I, I I definitely agree with Al. I don't think that percentage will change uh, because, you know, we have all the baby boomers dying off. And for those that hunting is acceptable, I find, you know, I've never had a problem being a hunter in Vancouver. Everybody's interested. Everybody's curious. Everybody knows uh not to profile a hunter as is is, i feel like in the city we are more accepting than folks think of hunting um but to actually be curious enough to go through the hoops i've had to go through i don't think that's a large percentage um but where things like the r3 kind of step in and i maybe segueing in it, but it provides educational opportunities for those that are curious to dabble in it without becoming a full-blown hunter. Uh, So yeah, I definitely think that part was missed. I don't think that percentage will change, but programs like R3 allow exposure to hunting in a more positive light. So, So when you say you heard about the grizzly ban, 
or the Grizzly Hunt, who, which side are you hearing stronger from in Vancouver, the pro or the against? The pro. I don't think the against even are aware, at least in my group of friends, that grizzly bears were illegally hunted and then they were banned. So, hmm. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. So if we look at... What do we think the reasons are? I mean, is there there's is there a culture shift? Because it, it I think over time there was there's a case as you said, baby boomers die off. The tradition doesn't get um, revisited to some people. Um, so you have this body of knowledge that isn't necessarily getting passed on. Mandy, is is your does everybody in your family hunt? Yeah, my mom and my dad. My sister doesn't know, but she lives in Sweden. There's a strong hunting culture in Sweden, mm-hmm. so she might get into it eventually over there. But, but you know, it's I, like in your case, um, you, you grab to it. Your sister, maybe, maybe not. My son, he's kind of an on again, off again hunter. I think that some of the declines and the erosion that we've had is is honestly, it's, it's a level of interest, and it's maybe a, it's reflective of the the world that we live in. Jenny, you make your living as a software designer. I would strongly suggest suggest if if we're in a digital world, you know, um, and there's a digital reality in our existence, you know, that the outdoors is a, is a different thing to engage in. And then I when you have so. to add, when you have to add the gravity of actually killing something, regardless of whether it's for food, that's sometimes across that that, that there's a big divide between I want to go hunting and pulling the trigger and killing something. And mm-hmm. I think in the culture that we're in right now, that that might be part of the things that that people struggle with. So I I wonder if the hunting and gun culture, or or if they get blended together, and that becomes some of the negatives that people reject the idea and why the tradition is perhaps eroded or has had some challenges, and maybe maybe there's people that are like, I don't know if I want to, you know, if 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 there's a perception that all hunters are just, you know, we're, we're just a bunch of gun-toting yahoos. I mean, I don't I don't know how prolific that is, but there was a time where that was the, I mean, we we get referred to as rednecks, Alan. You're from Ireland. You started hunting when you're 30. But if you were a hunter, um, people from the outside looking in, you might get that would be the brand that you would get. Right. Is that fair? Well, I think that's fair. I mean, I, uh, you know, I see that when when um, when you when you when you mix with with folks that, that don't don't really get get it. I mean, my family back in Ireland would not they, they just really don't understand it whatsoever. And I have good friends that live in, in Vancouver and really good friends. We see them a couple times a year. And it's only through her hearing my stories and knowing me personally that she started to say, hey, wait a minute, this hunting is not, they're not a bunch of rednecks running around mm-hmm. the mountains with rifles hanging off out the door, you know? So, you know, we have to tell our story. But I would say, yeah, I think, you know, we do have that, uh, that image that we've got to shed for sure. And also, Don, like with young people too, we're encouraged so much to go to university. And a lot of us have to leave small towns. You can't make a living now just with a high school diploma anymore. You have to get post-secondary education. And when you're in university, you don't have time in the fall to go out hunting. And you move away from your hometown. You're familiar with hunting around. You're in a whole new environment. Like you just don't have time to go out and you don't know where to go and you don't have anyone to go with as well. So I think a lot of younger people lose that tradition that way. Well, as well. Yeah, you, you can even see it on some of the Facebook groups. How many times yeah. have you seen it in a group where somebody goes, hey, I'm new to an area, just looking for some tips on some forest service roads. And all of a sudden it turns into a dog pile. 
well, you should yeah. pick up a map book like, or might even start exploring, put some miles on your boots. And it's, it's, we're not, we, we, we complain for the lot for the large portion that we're not bringing new hunters into the fold, but in the same breath, you don't really see the welcoming for yeah. a large portion of it. We're like, we're, I, I get where Matt is coming from when it comes to the, well, it's my spot. It's mm-hmm. my spot. If you can hunt anywhere, but not my spot. So are we accepting enough to be bringing in new rec- new recruits or well, are we are we our own worst enemies? There's, there's a couple of things to that, though. I mean, he his principal objection, if you if you look at the 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 bulk of what he wrote is the, the there's excess hunting pressure. But the other thing he equates us to is when you look at uh, an ecosystem and carrying capacity, that you know he considers us you know as a predator in in the, in an mm-hmm. ecological um, sense right so that we're part of that so we're part of the the accelerated um, hunting pressure that goes into a land base so it's not sustainable so bringing new people in there just just puts more predation pressure on in areas where there's already you know where we're crying about wolves and grizzly bears and mountain lions and coyotes and all of these things and now you add all these I think that's a bit of a justification for his position I, I completely do you know I don't think that that's necessarily because what what does the, the scientific data show for that? I know the, the moose harvest uh, d- study they did up here uh, on the known predation, what was it, 6% was licensed hunting? Yeah. So it's that's hardly that's, that's hardly a number that's going to have an impact. Even if you doubled, if you took 115,000 hunters and you doubled them to 230,000, you're only at most doubling that to 10% of harvest, 12%. Is it, but it, for, for hunters, Alan, it, it, do you think that it, with R3, let, let's talk a little bit about BHA and, and how you guys approach that. So Jenny joins uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Uh, at some point, how long did it take you to get to that decision, Jenny? About and, a and year. Why B, and why BHA? What what was it that they were that they were presenting to you that made you go, that's an organization that I think will satisfy what I'm looking for? Well, I think it represented a, a feel for hunters that I could relate to, more more mindful hunters, more a younger demographic of hunters, a more openness to educate. And I think Al will speak more to this in a second, but we don't, uh, through this journey, I've discovered, you know, the BHA is a part of R3, but back up in BC, uh, we do not have an R3 division or anything of that sorts. But the BC chapter, Region 2 specifically, we've always had that kind of educational approach to educate, uh, include people that are not hunters that are curious into the community and our membership. And so I felt very welcomed. I felt like I found my community, my people. Al, as a green terrorist at the old BHA thing. uh... (laughs) (laughs) Green green decoy. Yeah, the green decoy, yeah. (laughs) So oh, why do you speak a little bit to the, I mean, in the U.S., um, a, a good a good part of the of the discussion with BHA and R3 in general, a lot of it pivots around Pittman-Robertson dollars, mm-hmm. um, yeah. becomes fundraising. Yeah. That's less yep. true in, in, in British Columbia, but let's talk a little bit about the education piece, though, from BHA well, in, in BC. Yeah, so the, I mean, well, the, the overall BHA lens on the R3 movement is, is um increasing participation in and support of hunting, angling, and shooting sports. And that shooting sports is in there. You just mentioned it, Don. That shooting sports is in there because of Pittman-Roberts. 
because yeah. that you know that's the dollars that uh, that they can get. So it's not necessarily about increasing licenses or tags, sales, or anything like that. It's it's really about that education piece, uh, creating awareness and support of conservation and the hunting heritage, and and that's um, that's the BHA lens on it. And here in in BC, I mean, R three is not really. And maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't I don't see it yet as a Canadian really term yet. It's not something no. it's not in our vocabulary yet. So um, Jenny's right. We just as an organization, you know, just just started to embrace the the education piece and having events pre-COVID, of course, having events where we were showcasing, you know, this is how you know this is the equipment you might need, or this is you know this is how you how you even understand that. LEH synopsis and how right. to yep. how to apply. You know, those are the kinds of things we were doing. Our, uh, we have a collegiate club at the UBC Okanagan campus, and they would they match up uh, a hunter with a non-hunter, and they get out into the field, and uh, you know they usually start with some small game or whatever. But you know, so that, that piece is is the way the BC chapters tried to to do the R three part of BHA. You know, and other than, you know, we offer core programs and things which deal more specifically to become licensed to hunt. That's part of it, which is great. I just don't know that we do a great advocate. I don't think there's great advocacy. I think there's an okay effort. And I think whether we call it R3, I mean, there's a couple of things that I think we would want to embrace. How else would you propagate this tradition if you didn't engage those mechanisms? If you look at Ronella's quote, Ronella would say, that, you know, we should leave it to our friends and relatives to, to bring people into the fold mm-hmm. and let that happen naturally. But I think the rate of erosion would be greater than that. And yeah. I think the other part of it is, is it, why would you not want to grow this thing? You know, what well, I mean, other than it impacts your opportunity. And there are, and when I, when I think about that reality, I was looking at stats for our upcoming um, episode uh, in, about Idaho. You look at the amount of out-of-state hunters in the U.S., how many people that hunt in the United States, and we're talking millions of people that, that travel around the U.S. going to multiple states. You know, you're talking, you know, tens of thousands of tag issuances in, in different, in small states. There's a lot of hunting pressure. Um, there's a lot of people. I could see why they might get frustrated. But the other side of it is, is that if you want that tradition to continue, the, what do you, what's, what's the alternative? Let it decline? And, and let it become an anachronism and disappear. And it's like, oh, do you remember we used to hunt once upon a time? Like, I, I would hate to think that Jenny got into this thing and all of a sudden it's like, you know what? <laughs> we're getting out of it. You know, we're, we're done with the whole hunting thing. You know, we gave it some thought. Doesn't really make any sense. We're going in a different direction, right? I, I, I wonder if we're doing a good enough job in welcoming people into, in, into it and making an interesting proposition that compels people to want to do this. I think it's interesting that you got there through the meat eater because it's funny that this, to me, was a stark contrast to what the meat eater brand has been about, which is, you know, um, dealing with food security, having a relationship with your food, right? Um, Having a, 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 you know, a a real connection with with the land Um, and a little bit of struggle to get it, which means go farther, you know, stay longer, that whole first light thing. There's all of those things that are compelling. They're aspirational in their brand. And then this is sort of like, well, this is sort of, like anathema to that. This is completely the opposite, uh, you know, sort of approach. It's like what it reminded me of. It's like when, you know, you've got a really good band that you like and they're sort of an underground band. And then you're like, I really like this band. And then everybody else gets into the cure and you're like, yeah, now you ruined it. 
Right? It's like Nickelback. <laughs> Nickelback no syndrome. One, no it's like, now ever, they're too popular. No, no, I don't, no it, don't listen. You guys ruined the band for me. I think they ruined themselves, yeah. but that's a different Don, conversation. Don, can I add to that? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I first heard of this article because I was in a live forum on Clubhouse. And for those that don't know, Clubhouse is going to be like the next podcast. It's basically podcasting, but live with an audience. And that's, I joined the room because it all, it had a very catchy title and it was talking about this article. So before joining the room, I gave it a skim very quickly. And my initial thought was nothing of Renella segregating out, you know, colored people, people of different race are not thinking big picture. My first thought was, man, this is a man that's lost the vision of his company. That was actually, cause I actually, I sell soft. Sorry, I'm not a software creator. I'm a, I sell software, but I also work in the digital PR and marketing space in that genre. And so when I read that, I said, this is a company that grew too big, too fast. Um, and now they're just pushing to make money. And this is written by a man that's just kind of lost his true purpose. Even Ranella, like when, when Ranella first started off before he became famous, his first book was about collecting all this wild game for a huge French feast. And so yeah. they kind of lost that food aspect of things and they've just matured. So I hope they use this opportunity and all this feedback to kind of regroup as a company and realign themselves. You know, I, I can't help but wonder in this discussion, you know, and, and just fr from, from the perspective of um, a, a, as a hunting community, you know, I, I know that, you know, having having lots of hunters come to an area, you know, that you that you frequent is frustrating. But if we look just in general, if we just take the word opportunity, you know, um, the is it, it, part of the tension that exists um, uh, or that's coming out of uh, this discussion uh, that Ronella is having. It's part of the tension because we have downward pressure um on some of our game populations, you know, moose opportunity is declining, you know, parts of the province mule deer opportunity is declining. Um, and, and I wonder if we had robust, healthy, vibrant game surplus, you know, would we feel the same way if we were talking about bringing more hunters into the fold? Because if there was a healthy surplus, I think that the the, the reaction that we're getting out of articles like this and other sentiments that are frequently shared, you know, by lots of people that say there's a, there's too many people hunting this and there's too many people in the area. Um, I, I wonder how different we would feel if we didn't have um, issues uh, with our game population. I think one of the, the examples that was given in Ranella's article uh, talked about, you know, the, the big growth in the hunting world, uh, I think in states in like the Carolinas where deer populations are up. Um, you know, you've got lots of states where there have been some healthy rebounds, particularly around white deer, deer populations. And uh, hunter, hunter ranks are growing. Now, that probably doesn't change the, the, the reality that in some instances you might have people, you know, in your, your favorite honey hole. But I don't think there's the same level of vitriol and, <laughs> you know, the get off my lawn mentality that we've been kind of joking about. Um, anyway, so, uh, but the other side of this is we, the, we, we, we want to grow this community. I don't think, I don't think anybody, uh, anybody on this podcast or anybody listening to this podcast is against the idea of growing the community. Um, as, you know, if it impacts our opportunity, 
uh, if that happened. Like if tomorrow there's 250,000 hunters in BC, not 115,000 hunters. You got 250,000 people. They all stood up tomorrow and said, yeah, we want to we want to join in this tradition. Um, if it imp- if that impacted our opportunity and all of a sudden everything's on a draw or you can't you can't go out and hunt a mule deer every year it's every other year or, or you know every five years i don't i mean you, we don't know if those um if those consequences would be visited on that scenario but if they did how would we feel about it how would we all feel tomorrow if now there's 250,000 hunters in the field you know how would you guys feel about that like I would probably focus on something else, like small game or something. If I could only draw a tag every couple of years, so it wouldn't affect you going out. It wouldn't affect you going out. We're losing our clout too, because as a percentage total of population, even though we're at a hundred thousand, we're a lower percentage of the population than we were forty some odd years ago, because the whole population's grown. Yeah, we yeah. went from yeah. about sixteen percent. have been like, yeah. like. Eight percent or something before, and now you're down to four or five percent. So it's not out there. It's not as common. It's not as acceptable. And we do need more numbers to, like, up our political clout as well. We need more to advocate. Because well, it, look at these anti-hunting organizations. They get hundreds of thousands of people. Mind you, a lot of them are not even in Canada, and a lot of them are not even in BC. They're just a bunch of trolls on the internet. Some of them. <laughs> Band together. When you look at it, they're not even from Canada, but they'll all band together and yeah, they got. But the reason I, the reason I'm 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 scaling it up because that's that's the concern for Renella. We can't get so many people because it's going to affect our opportunity. Forget the hunting pressure; the the game population can't sustain it. So, Alan, what do you think? Two hundred fifty thousand hunters is that a good goal line? Well. You know, I, I don't know that we would we would get there. And, I, and I've got to admit, like, when you say that, I go, oh, I don't know. <laughs> but, I don't know if I like that. Right. And and I think that's what, you know, that's where Matt was going. And he and I think, you know, most a lot of people that read that were like, yeah, he's right. But it, but then when you sit back and think about it and say, you know, would that I think that recruitment would be a positive thing for the hunting community in general and then we have to look at the bigger picture of that of that opportunity and say, you know, what can we do differently with with um, managing game and wildlife and habitat in particular to to make that sustainable. So I think that's the lens I would take take it. And I would say that if we got to two hundred fifty thousand hunters, um, they're not going to be there if they're if they get that opportunity to hunt mule deer every three years and they can't find a mule deer. Like there just won't be those kind of numbers. So. If we got to that kind of numbers, I think it would be a positive thing. I but it took me a while. It took me a while to make that circle. <laughs> I think if we had more people, more hunters, maybe we would have stronger habitat protection as well. Maybe we would advocate and have more protected areas where we could hunt that aren't logged, and maybe we would actually have the political clout to get some form of predator management, like they did years and years ago. I don't know. Maybe they would grow game numbers. But if you had 250,000 people, it's not all coming out of a r- rural setting. Jenny, if there's 250,000 hunters in British Columbia, I bet you wouldn't have taken that long for you to connect the dots to somebody. Well, when, as soon as you said that statement, at first I had an initial reaction like Mandy and Al, but then I just thought, I would like to see us try to get to that number because the barrier of hunting is just way too hard. 
I think so, now that I've connected with a few courses out there that teach hunting, mm -hmm. statistically, I think they get a classroom full of 30 people a couple of times a year. I think it's a very low percentage. I don't want to quote in case I get it wrong, but I think maybe if you're lucky, one person out of the 30 people cut a tag that year because a lot of people show interest. And that's the point of these R3 groups is to show interest, educate, show a side of hunting, of, 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 of how to do hunting right. And these people will most likely be pro hunting for the rest of their lives, but they won't actually go out there. So I would say, go ahead, let's try to get there and actually see what happens. I actually don't think it's possible. But, and that, but it's, you, you raise an interesting point. If you had 250,000 people that embraced it and, and depending on, let's say not everybody's a diehard and wants to be out every weekend. But if you had 250,000 people that said, hey, listen, I'm going to go out, I'm going to buy, you know, my habitat, I'm going to be prepared to go hunting, and I might buy a tag. You would probably, from that, just, just from getting that many more people having that conversation, that bandwidth that you create in terms of the visibility around hunting probably has a bigger net effect on areas of conservation, helping things like the grizzly bear hunt and, you know, a large carnivore hunting, some of these other things that we're talking about. If we look at uh, the Fish, Wildlife and uh, Habitat Coalition that, you know, we've talked with Alan about, um, you, you probably get a lot farther with other stakeholder groups. Um, you know, you probably get more engagement with First Nations, you know, where you can be like-minded and have better synergies. Um, but the other thing, I think a lot comes out of trying to grow it. Right. I, the, the, the worst part about it is that there's a chance that there's more people in the places that you want to go and you're going to have to work a little harder to find those opportunities. And, and largely because we're dealing with, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, government land. It's a lot of crown land hunting that we do. It might force more people to spend some more time learning how to one of the things that was in that the rebuttal was outdoor life saying how many people actually know how to go ask for permission <laughs> yeah. on private land. Yep. And that's something that, you know, I, from an education standpoint, Nobody ever taught me how to do that. I did it all wrong when I first started. I mean, show up, show up in your camo with your, your truck and your ball cap, right? Get out, look like you're ready to, you, you just got deployed to Afghanistan and go ask somebody to, there's you know, a, you look like you're going to be shooting up the place. Yeah, there's a deer in your yard. Can I go shoot it? And the wrong do, approach. Yeah, and do yeah. it, do it. You know, nobody taught me that. And then finally somebody said, you know, you get a little farther if you did this like in the off season, like before there was hunters all over the place shooting up their fields. And it, I got way farther, but nobody taught me that. You had to trip over that. Um, mm -hmm. we, we're, we're not necessarily giving people the, the, the right things to think about. But I think, uh, I, think we can do a better, I think we can do a better job facilitating this tradition and helping grow it. Um, and there's a, sure. lot of, there's a lot of things that, pe that appeal to them. I mean, things like the 100-mile diet, the whole locavore movement. Um, there's a lot of things that have led us to this place, why it's appealing. Because for Alan, would you? I, I would suggest that within BHA, a large body of your membership, food is the primary reason that you're there, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's, uh, and I and I'm gonna uh, pick up on a couple of the things that you said there and expand on it. But but yes, I think the um, food security is certainly uh, a piece for for BHA. Um, and I, and I think it's a piece for a lot of new hunters and I, and, and the meat eater sort of built his, he built his empire on that message, which is very interesting that then this came out. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let's but, remember it's but, his brother that wrote it, not him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, actually I, Jenny and I both had a, an opportunity to see a live podcast with, uh, 
with Matt and Steve and, and a few others uh, in at a rendezvous, BHA rendezvous in, in Boise. And he's, he's a great guy. Like he told awesome stories and he was very relatable. So, you know, this is just a piece of um, that came out and I think out of, out of frustration or his frustration. But, you know, you said earlier, like we get a lot out of the process of this education piece or this recruitment piece, let's call it. And I think that is the key here. I mean, you know, there's a, BHA runs a, uh, well, they started it, but now the University of Montana actually has a credit course called Hunting for Sustainability. You actually get credits to go towards your graduation if you take this course. And um, there's a, a story in our journal, goes back a few years ago, and I couldn't find it, so I just have to summarize it. But um, a student at the University of Montana took this course, and at the end of it, she wrote a very articulate article for our journal basically saying i am never ever going to be a hunter but this is why i will always support hunting and that is powerful and that's what we need mm-hmm. yeah yeah well you that's know? what you want you want people yeah. to advocate for the thing that you love because they understand it they don't have to embrace it they just have to understand it mm-hmm. right that's right and, and if, i think that's what we you shut were trying them to out suggest complete- yeah. if we yeah. shut them out completely it's just never it's never going to get there and just like if we bring in a new hunter from Vancouver, like Jenny, um, you know, who was never surrounded by anybody else that, that hunting, and now she tells her stories at her dinner parties or whatever else, all of a sudden we've now got 20, 30, 40 people that understand, and uh, they maybe are never going to come out here, but they understand. So, you know, that's the powerful piece, I think, of the recruitment and education that we've got to sort of wrap our minds around. Yeah, and I, I, I think what's important is um, if we're looking at how to engage people and how to bring people into the fold, the way that we storytell um, becomes really important. There's been a big shift uh, if you look in you know, hunting as a community. There's been a huge shift. And, you know, I, I got to credit people like Steve Ranella, you know, First Light, um, Stone Glacier, you know, uh, Kafaru, et cetera, um, the way that they're storytelling through their Instagram feed and the visual medium that they've, you know, they've embraced um, to storytell, not just about grip and grin photography, um, you know, not just about the things that we kill, but it's really the experience that we're having, you know, your, your, you know, sunrises and sunsets and, uh, you know, the, the food that we prepare, you know, and you look at ants, uh, if I look at, you know, Mandy, for example, uh, if you look at her Instagram feed, it's a lot of, the things that she consumes and the things that she makes, you know, her, her foraging, um, you know, making, you know, making, rending, rendering bare, bare uh, fat, for instance. Um, it, it's different imagery than, you know, people, you know, running around with uh, guns and camo um, and just posing in front of an animal, right? Um, I think that that's, uh, I, th- I think that's super important. And I've, I've seen it in my own life. I get more traction now just having pictures of, you know, me out in the, out in the backcountry hunting without the hunting part. Yep. I get way more traction and way more engagement from people selling the pursuit yep. of being out there and backpacking and enjoying the adventure than I ever would off of the things that I kill. People see that, you know, I'm posting the, the final product, the food. That becomes way more relevant and, and may more, way more digestible. Um, and people want more of it. They'll, they'll nibble away at that a little bit. It's like, oh, okay, well, he's actually eating bear. Okay, I didn't know that. Okay. Uh, you, you know, you got me thinking a little bit differently about it. We need to spend more time in that space and, and less time in the, you know, what caliber do you want? And, uh, you know, all of those discussions that I think we, we, we labor and we focus so much on. Um, so 
Jenny, if you if you took a look from where you started to where you're at now, um, would you have imagined five years ago that you would be in in the hunting space that you're in, Hell having no. these kinds of conversations? No. <laughs> I would. What just... about people? I, I was going to say, what about people in your family? What do they think? Um, well, well, my parents immigrated here from Vietnam, and my dad said, we ran away from the jungle. Why are you going back into the jungle? <laughs> he but was... do they, so, but do, do they embrace what you're doing? Um, do they understand why you want to do it and what you get out of it? I mean, I mean other than the food piece? I think it took, well, there is a language barrier between us, and I think, I think it took all three years, but I don't hear them grumble anymore every okay. time I say I'm going out in the woods. So I think it's coming around, and I also think they see that I've become a much pa- more patient person from spending so much time in the woods, and they've noticed that in me, and my little character changes. And because of hunting, I found like my purpose in life. I'm like, oh my God, this is, I've always had a calling to serve people through food, but I can't survive in a kitchen, but I can serve it in this space through food. And so I'm just an all around more jolly person. And I think they, they, they slowly started seeing that. So it's interesting because there's one of the things, and this is the last quote I wanted to, to, to weigh in on, because it was one of the things that I remember reading and I was like, yeah, I, I don't buy that. Uh, one of the things that he wrote was part of our three's appeal is that it makes hunters feel warm and fuzzy, benevolent folks guiding newbies to a more fulfilling life. There is zero empirical evidence that simply turning someone into a hunter makes them a better, happier citizen. And I would think out of the entire article, that is the thing I took the greatest umbrage to. I yeah. believe it or not, that's the one that I really went, well, oh, come on, man. Mandy, you're laughing. Yeah, I was kind of offended by that, too, because I think hunting does teach you a lot of patience, and it teaches you a great, great deal of responsibility. You have to do what's right when no one else is out there watching you. you got to have ethics, and I think it's just so good for your mental health to get out in the forest and have your, like, the sense of accomplishment when you get your own food out there. That's right. I think it is a good thing for people to do. Like, I was well, like, I read that. I was like, whatever. Like, I totally didn't agree with that quote. Well, yeah, that that's the one that got me, Alan. Uh, I, I said, well, I pretty much saw everybody kind of nod their head when I read it. I'm assuming you felt similar. Well, I was I was kind of confused first of all by the by the sentence. Um, well, by the reaction too, because I agree with Mandy and 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 Jenny and what you guys have said. I mean, I I live to be in the mountains, and uh, my mindset changes, and I forget the office, and it's just a whole it's a whole different. Uh, so it is a healthy thing, but also at the same time, I was like, I don't really think that's the motivation of us telling our story and and recruiting. Like it's that's not it. I think it's a bit it's a bit bigger bit bigger than that. So I was confused on two fronts with that sentence. Yeah, I just, I, I, I don't think it's, uh, it's required. I don't think we're trying to make happier citizens. But I'd, I mean, love to, I'd love to know Matt's mindset when he wrote that. Yeah, I, I think was he I th- pissed off at something? Well, it doesn't I, seem. I think he was, and I think Alan touched on it. I think yeah. he just frustrated, right? 
get to a couple of places, pack in four miles and show up and there's people, you know, where you want to hunt. And if that happens enough times, I mean, I get mad when that happens. I don't know that I would come home and write an op-ed piece like this saying, get out, <laughs> right? Everybody get out of my playground. But, you know, yeah. I, I get his frustration. Yeah. Mm. And I think that's all it's born out of. I think, I but, think not drilling too deeply into it. I think someone's going through a life crisis. And because, you know, when people start pointing <laughs> fingers, it's usually internal. Sorry, Matt, Ranella, if you're listening. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm sure he isn't. So <laughs> Ben O'Brien might be. All right. Yeah, Ben O'Brien might be. Uh, who knows? Well, um, I, I just kind of want – I'm glad we gave this uh, this topic a little bit of discussion, and uh, I'm glad we could talk a little bit about some of the things that are available through BHA. And uh, there's a lot of great organizations. You know, I, I've uh, we were going to have SCI on, but um, I couldn't get anybody to – it was just the, the scheduling didn't work. Um, but, I mean, I'm a member, and I've said this before. I'm a member of uh, SCI. I'm a member of BHA in BC. Um, I'm a member of uh, BC Wildlife Federation, Wild Sheep. Uh, Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, National Wild Turkey Federation, um, you know, Steelhead Society. I'm a member of a lot of those organizations. And the reason I am is is not because I hunt goats and I don't hunt sheep and I don't hunt turkeys in the U.S. Um, I'm a member of those organizations because there's education pieces behind all of them. There's engagement for their membership. There's research. There's conservation work. Um, and I think all of them have a unique perspective. Um, BHA is one that I'm particularly passionate about, and uh, I think it's a great organization with a lot of synergy into some of the things that we do, including here at Spruce City. Um, so if you're looking for an organization, Alan, what's the best way that they can reach out uh, to you guys? Uh, well, first of all, I appreciate the appreciate what you're saying, and I think that that's a good message. And, you know, yes, I'm chair of BHA, but I'm also a member of those other organizations that you mentioned too, for all those same reasons. But um, BHA, yeah, we can go to, if you go to our main website, which is backcountryhunters.org, that gets you to the, the headquarters website. You can navigate through there and get to our chapter. But to, to get a membership specifically for BC, um, the best way is through uh, our, our direct store. That way the money comes directly to the BC chapter, stays in BC. Uh, and that's backcountryhuntersbc.com. Awesome. And Mandy, any final thoughts from you tonight? Other than I know you're just dying to get back to the hospital and work another 70 no. or 80 hours. No. Well, I could work my stat tonight and then I'd get triple time. So that'd be pretty decent. I love your motivation. I love your motivation. <laughs> so when's bear hunting going for you, Mandy? Soon? Uh, Will you be out in the next couple of weeks? You know why I was working so much overtime? Because I could bank it. <laughs> Banking it. Uh, yeah. Time off. And also, I can pay for hunting stuff. <laughs> How's your? Is your? Are you healed up? Are you ready to be able to get out on those trails and stuff? Uh, Ankles all good. I'm, yeah, I'm getting a little antsy. I, I'll have to admit, but I'm going out. I've already taken my time off. I've taken my first set off in May, so hopefully May first, May second, I'll be going out bear hunting. I'll be looking for the post. And Jenny, you said you've already been out. A few times. It's hot here. A few times. <laughs> Is it hot there? No, no chance on a bear yet. Uh, actually, I have to. I can't lie because I just feel bad. <laughs> but I, I missed a bear at two hundred and fifty yards. It was a clean miss though, because we got the dogs out to make sure. Uh, but I will be back. You, <laughs> Alan, and for you, spring bear is a thing for you or not a thing for you? 
Um, you know, it, it, it is a little bit, I'll go out with, I'll definitely go out with folks. Um, uh, so Jenny, you know, if you're really interested, I'll, I'll definitely take you out. Um, I lost my gumption for bear hunting after, after the grizzly grizzly hunting was just awesome. Mm. I loved it so much, but, um, but it's, it's, it's snowing right now. So yeah, we're not bear hunting here. Well, thank God it's you. Yeah. <laughs> don't jinx us. <laughs> now we don't need any of that. Well, Jenny, if uh, you ever want to find your way up into the Prince George area, um, we'll find a way to get you up here. If you ever want to come up and have a little adventure, uh, Steve and Mandy and I will take you out. Mandy will do all of the actual guiding. Steve and I'll just be able to uh, help things along. We're here for color commentary. And we'll just bring, to, we'll bring the Oreo. Yeah. We'll bring the Oreo cookies and keep it yeah. funny, but uh, you have an open invitation to come up here anytime and hunt with us. We'd, we'd love to have you. So I really and, appreciate uh, that. As soon as the travel bans uh, restrictions or recommendations are over, I'll be on a plane over there. Cause I still don't own, I have a car. So who's picking me up? <laughs> yeah. You just, you, you just let us know. We, we could, we can hook you up. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us. And uh, we will see all of you on uh, future episodes. Uh, Thanks, as always, for sharing your perspective. Take care, everybody. Enjoy the snow, Alan. All right. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Thank you very much. Hopefully it's on tomorrow. Yeah. 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 Dig it. See you guys. Bye-bye. Cheers. Good night. All right. Well, it was uh, just a kind of a, a walk around the idea of R three. I, I know it's it is largely uh, an, an American, not an American concept, but it is it the, the weight of the discussion around R three. I, I could I could even say it is an American concept. We don't have that much up here. R three R's are reading, writing, arithmetic. Yeah, yeah. Like really. But I but I think the whole idea of hunter recruitment is an issue. And, yes. Uh, I, I think I you know I'm glad to get some perspective, and you know we you know we we got a fairly good one. Uh, there's a good cross section of. of people's way to intersect hunting you know mm-hmm. um and considering i mean out of everybody mandy's the only person that kind of grew up in a hunting family the rest of us all sort of came to it later in life yep. right yep. um man I, you got to give jenny credit no car i can't believe that <laughs> yeah, yeah. good for her <laughs> imagine how difficult it's got to be to take public transit holding a rifle and a bear exactly <laughs> hopping on the sea bus yeah, i don't know Can, so is that why yeah. she 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 missed the bear was yeah. it on purpose because she didn't want to <laughs> talk to the sea bus operator yeah yeah i don't know can, can you uber or lift a, a bear po- <laughs> you, you, you yeah. probably could <laughs> well i it was it was awesome to have them here and uh, have a have that discussion so uh, anyway, we will uh, next. We'll be talking to uh, Jim Huntsman at the Broken Tine Studio in Hayden, Idaho. Uh, that's coming up uh, right away. And then our good friend Michael Schneider will be coming back out of the yonder uh, destination, wherever he, he is, wherever he time. is, up in the mountains. Hard to keep track. Uh, of that guy. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, tracking uh, wounded game, uh, particularly using a dog. How to track him? So, Where the hell are you these days? Yeah. How do we find you? What, yeah, well, maybe we'll start with how to find Michael, and then yeah. we'll get on to the other stuff. But that's going to be a pretty cool episode. There's lots yeah. to learn. Steve and I had a great chance to. We worked with uh, Mike and his dog a couple of times and had a chance to spend some time. You, in the you got to see how the dog works firsthand. Yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit about that's using a using a tracking dog, and I think it'll be awesome. Um, other than that, um, just real quick um, for Matt and Steve and myself, uh, you know, it's been uh, over a year now that we've been doing this. Um, had a few thousand people now listening to us, uh, which is pretty cool. And uh, we've had some great conversations. But uh, on a serious note, Ben O'Brien, uh, Phil, the engineer, uh, we're going to miss you guys. The Hunting Collective is the reason that we got started doing this thing, and you guys will make our roadmap. So thanks for inspiring us, and thank everybody for listening. So on behalf of Matty W., Stevie Wonder, and Donnie, cheers. Cheers.